Welcome to this very special episode of our podcast. Today, I'm going to be sitting down with Craig Gould, a true warrior in the face of adversity. 12 years ago, at the age of 42, Craig was given a heart-wrenching prognosis of just three weeks to live following a devastating cancer diagnosis. Defying all the odds, Craig has battled through, living each day with courage and determination. Now, as he faces new challenges with treatments becoming less effective, Craig wants to share his journey. This episode is not just a story of survival, it's a heartfelt message to other cancer sufferers, his friends, his family, but most importantly, his beloved wife and children. Join me as Craig opens up about his life, his battles, and his unbreakable spirit. Hi, Craig. I just want to ask, you want to do this podcast, and I want you want to share your story. Why? Well, why do you want to do this, and, and why now? Over the years, I've always been very against any kind of rea- reality or reaction to me having this disease. Getting to the stage again late, late last year, I had a bit of a scare. I was told I'd only got a limited time left, and I was in a lot of trouble. During a, a few drinks one evening with some friends, we thought, let's try and record this so at least my children will have the full story of what happened and the road I've been down dealing with myeloma. And apart from your children, is there something that you're op- hoping to share with listeners that either know you or listeners that might be going through the same battle as you or people who are living with people going through the same experience as you? Is there anything you particularly want to get across? I hope that it can help someone. If it can help one person, I'd be happy. It's just really, everyone works with cancer different ways and it affects them differently. That, that it's mentally is that one of the hardest parts of it. Mm. I've lived it as normally as I can. Obviously, I've had a few things affected. But in general, I managed to work. I became MD of a company. And I managed to have holidays. Obviously, my football career was ended. I don't remember your football career, if I'm honest. I don't anyone else, to be honest, but I do somehow. <laughs> so let's go right back to the start. Tell me about the moment leading up to that call. Back in January of 2012, I was unable to sleep flat, uh, sleeping propped up on the sofa, pains in my ribs, pains in my <clears throat> chest, and in an awful way. So I went to the doctors. <clears throat> they immediately sent me up to A&E for an X-ray. And then that was my first, what I call, casualty moment. So I had the x-ray, and they had this little window where you can see into the the office where the girls are working. So I saw them put my x-rays up, because it was quite late in the evening, I was the last one. And then it was the, it, it was the, it was the casualty moment. I saw one of them po- point at the screen, call across another one. They started pointing at the screen, then they called across another one. And I could all see him now pointing at the screen. I'm thinking, nah, this ain't good. So anyway, they promptly came out and said, sorry, sir, you need to come back here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm like, all right, okay. And I go, as I take it, this isn't good. Obviously, they can't tell me the answers. They said, no, you need to come back and see the doctor tomorrow. He'll give you the results. So I went in 10 o'clock the next morning. I met a doctor. He told me that there was lesions all over my bones and they need to do further investigation, but it's definitely a cancer. Okay. And then that day was spent doing some tests. So just pause there for a minute. So leading up to that moment, you'd been completely well for all of your life, apart from the sort of weeks leading up to this x-ray. 
and you had basically a bad back. It was a bad back was how it was manifesting. Yeah, and bad back, which you went to the doctor for, and before you know it, you're in A&E having an X-ray, and they're getting you back the next day, and they've told you the next day you've got cancer all over your body. Yeah, he said I got a, a cancer. They didn't know what. They need to do tests, and they need to find out more about it before they can give a proper diagnosis. So that day was then spent doing more of the basic testing. Who was with you at this point? Were you by yourself or? Yes, by myself. Had you spoken to your wife about this? Yes, we uh, she we didn't, didn't know what it was at that point, but we knew it wasn't couldn't be good. I didn't I didn't tell my wife in the council word at that point. And why not? Because <clears throat> they weren't one hundred percent. They thought so. And did you believe it was cancer? Yeah, in fact. <sighs> I used to work, and the year before, I used to work part-time at a, a local golf club doing some cooking. And I was really struggling with the lifting, whatever, because of the back. And I remember joking to them that you'll all be sorry when I've got cancer next year. Because yeah. sure enough, I did. Okay, so you're having a few tests, and eventually they refer you for a bone marrow biopsy. So the next day I've gone to work. My work in them days was a salesman. So I was driving around uh, in the Tottenham area. I got the phone call. Uh, they said, you need to pull over, I need to talk to you. So I managed to pull over in what was Sainsbury's car park. And he said, we've had your results. We believe you have bone cancer. And it's not good, you need to come back tomorrow. So I said, what do you mean not good? I shouldn't tell you over the phone. What? The prognosis is not good. Okay, so you tell me I'm dying. How long have I got? We think you've got about three months to live. They told you that over the phone? Yeah, I was sat in Sainsbury's car park on my own. That conversation ended there, really, because there's not a lot you can say. I then sat in the car for a few minutes. I think I had a little cry. Then I called my brother, told him to keep this under his hat, but this is where I'm at. Uh, I didn't call my wife at this point because obviously I need to tell her this face-to-face. And then I actually had a meeting down in Kent. I was doing a presentation from work. So I carried on down to Kent and did the presentation, because I didn't really know what else to do. I just thought, carry on. Uh, so I did that. Then I came home that evening. Everyone's happy as long. Everyone's joking. No one's really worried, thinking what's going on. And then it hits you, because then you've got to have a real conversation. Probably the hardest conversation I had in my life. Christine, I need to tell you something. I have to tell her I've got three months to live. Which, as you can imagine, was pretty emotional. Once we got over that, and that was a quite solid, surreal evening, for sure. Both of us staring into the walls going, what the heck's going on? The next day, Christine came with me back into the hospital, and then they started doing the real testing. Tell me about a bone marrow biopsy. I've seen them done. I've had patients who've had them done. Are they as bad as everyone say they are? They're the most horrific thing known to man. I've taken everything and been fine with everything that's been thrown at me with the chemo, with the whatever they've put into me, the IV tubes. I've had kyphoplasty. Everything is absolute double compared to this. Now this one is the only thing that absolutely terrifies me even now. So tell me about it. What happens? They, they strap you down? Ah, oh, you say they strap you down. <laughs> they strap you down. So bone marrow is, they can anaesthetise your skin and flesh, 
which they do, but they can't anesthetize your bone. They go into your skin and flesh with a quite a chunky needle, which slightly resembles a small corkscrew. They get through your flesh, then they get to your bone. That's when you know, because it hurts. It hurts like hell. Then they screw into your bone and take a slither of bone out. Then they go back in with a needle through the middle of the other needle, and they take a, a big squidge of your bone marrow out, which you feel that sends a jolt through you. Now, I can only describe the pain as horrific. Uh, and at that stage, when they were still trying to source the real root of my cancer, I think I had four, maybe five of these in rapid succession. Why do you have so many? Because I don't know the doctors had a bloody clue what they were doing. He decided I'd got some disease and tried to prove it, and he couldn't. So at one point, they took me into a theatre. Normally, bone marrow biopsies are just done in a, in a hospital room, and it's localised. At one point, he sent me into a proper theatre, and the guy taking it, Again, no anesthetic, no anesthetic, straight into the bone. Now he's hacking away. He's trying to get to me. And he's saying to me, mate, you haven't got bone cancer. I can't shift your bone. I can't get it off. I said, I know it hurts. So he said, I don't know why we're doing this. You haven't got bone cancer. Because bone cancer is the bone's soft and it's easy to scrape off. Yours isn't. It's rock hard. It's not happening. So anyway, after an hour of him hacking away at my bones, he comes out, and sure enough, the results were inconclusive. At the time, this is funny now, it really wasn't funny at the time. They sent a young girl to come and do a biopsy on me. And I remember she comes in, she's a very small, dainty, nice girl. And I could see the fear in her eyes. I'm like, I've got a minute, I should have the fear in my eyes, not you. And I go, have you done this before? She said, no. She said, I'll have to be honest, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, this is going to go well. So anyway, she starts doing it and anesthetizes the skin and flesh. Okay, that part's good. So then she gets on to she gets the big old needles out. So I can see them rattling and the big old corkscrew to go in to get the bone and the bone marrow. And this is where it goes a bit wrong. So she's now trying to get this needle into my bone, not very successfully. So now she's starting to panic and struggle a bit. I'm obviously in a world of pain, curled up in a fetal position. So she's pushing to try and get this needle in. It's not going in. So she's now, she's not a big girl anyway, but she's now using all her filth to try and get this needle in. So she's pushing me off the bed with a needle. So it ends up with Christine on the other side of the bed, holding me by the knees so she doesn't push me off the bed, and her trying to force this needle into my bones. This went on for about five minutes with me in just pure agony. Literally, can't tears streaming down my face, can't speak, can't do anything. But in the end, Christine just said, you've got to stop this. this what are you doing? You can't be pushing a grown man, who, remember at that stage I was quite heavy, off a bed with a single small pointed needle and realise this is not working. And she went, yeah, OK. And she stopped and then, I think we call it a day for, to, call it a day for this one. So that was. So she left, and we were left in this little room on a bed, completely traumatized. And even Christine's traumatized. I'm watching just seeing this. Holy shit! Is that normal? So how many bone biopsies did you have in total? I think three, maybe four. 
And did they do any of them successfully at that time? No, they didn't do any successfully. Every single one came back inconclusive. They've not managed to get a diagnosis. What next? They say you've got cancer, but they don't have any sort of cells or tissue to say what cancer. They've told me I've got bone cancer. Okay. That's due to the lesions in my bones. They've now decided an adamant it's bone cancer and all tests are for bone cancer. So, so in terms of bone cancer, there's obviously primary bone cancer where the cancer arises from the bone and there's secondary bone cancer where basically it's spread from somewhere else. I suppose at this stage... Yeah. They didn't know whether it was a primary or whether it spread from somewhere else, right? No. So that was the next thing they did. They shoot your radiation, leave you an hour for the radiation to go around the body, then put you through the CT scanner. So that was my first PET scan when they wanted to find out if there's any secondaries or primaries, whatever way around it's going to be. Obviously, you did that. Then you left for a week because the results only come through in a week. They don't come through quickly. So then I'm back home, getting progressively worse. So when you say worse, are you talking like... Physically weaker, more pain. What what type of thing? Would you know? Nearly dead. Okay. Um, and did you feel like you were dying? No, I didn't feel like I was dying. They wanted me to. They put me on palliative care and everything. Uh, as you, you you recall, at one point, the palliative care meeting, which was literally me, Christine, and then yourself in a room. The doctor telling me I've got. I'm going to die. It's going to happen fairly quickly. This is the team that's going to look after you, make you comfortable when you die. And I've still got bone cancer. How long ago was that? 12 years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was incredibly lucky that I knew someone yeah. that was in the medical profession and was telling me along the way, this doesn't sound right, it's not right, I believe you have myeloma. And eventually this gentleman came in to the palliative care meeting with me and got fairly annoyed and said to them, they're wrong, you need to start doing these tests. And at that point, he wrote to my doctor, my GP, and he got me referred to a specialist down at the Royal Free. And within a couple of weeks, I went down to see him and then things changed. At one stage, you're there with Christine, your wife, and you're broken. You're both thinking that you're going to die. You both think that it's a matter of a couple of weeks. To, to go to a hospice, and I, I remember those days very vividly. And then all of a sudden, you're meeting a specialist, Professor Meta at Royal Free Hospital. Tell me about that meeting with Prof Meta and how that changed you and Christine's view on how you're going to go forward with this cancer. Well, Prof Meta is <clears throat> he's my favourite of all time. I loved him. He was blunt, I suppose is the way to put it, as blunt as you could possibly be. There's no dressing anything or papers, bang, that's the, that's the facts, that's the truth, get on with it. Which suits me down to the ground, other people didn't like that approach. But he was an absolute genius. I remember we got in the Royal Free. At this stage, I'll tell you what condition I was in. I'm in a wheelchair. I can barely walk. I've got broken ribs. I've got broken sternum. I've got two collapsed vertebrae. And I've got pneumonia. And that's all from the cancer? I suppose you could say the cancer is the root cause. Okay. So you've arrived there, you're a broken man, and you're seeing Prof Meta for the first time. Tell me what happens. So we go in, I get wheeled in, and um, I'm there, he's looking at my notes. So they've done all their tests now down the world free. They've got my bloods. They haven't done a bone marrow, they didn't need to. They've looked at all the reports. 
the other hospital did. And I remember, I think to you, they did the Bench Jones testing, which wasn't ever on their radar until the end. He's looks there, he says nothing. For about 10 minutes. So I don't know if you ever had 10 minutes silence, but me and Chrissy are just looking at each other going, we're, we're in an awful state anyway. And he just, he just looks up eventually. He took, grabs my wrist and goes, I can fix you. And um, I think I get emotional. Like me and Christy were just in bits. And I said, really? He went, yep, yeah, I can do this. Mm -hmm.